Have you ever wondered why it's difficult to give your attention, energy, and take action on what matters the most to you? Or to speak up with clarity from the best part of yourself? If that's you, then you're in the right place. The follow-through formula is dedicated to providing daily inspiration for you to follow through on the real you. Hello there, good folks. This is Rick Lewis again. Say, say, say again, what? No, this is me. I'm doing, the, oh. <laughs> I was doing the intro to the okay. recording. Okay. <laughs> 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 and it sounds like your old granny comes in. I said, let's say again, where's my ear what? trumpet? Why'd you say there, Sonny? What'd you say? <laughs> I think we're off to a fly start there, no problem. <laughs> we are. All right. So we're going to try that intro again. Hello. Hello there, good listeners. This is Rick Lewis back again. Can you believe it? For episode 42 of the Follow Through Formula podcast. I have another interview today. And as I've done before with previous interviews, I have called up another good friend and just sprang upon her the idea that I'd like to record her uh, on the podcast, uh, record our conversation and this interview. And she is all 100% in to give it a try. And uh, I have Barbara Dubois here laughing on the other end of the phone. Because we're off to this uh, rousing, stumbling, comedy <laughs> of error start to our, our podcast. And Barbara, you are this dear and wonderful person to me. Um, just give us a quick update of so, so people know who I'm talking to. And maybe I'll learn something in the process. I am an 80-year-old American woman originally from West Virginia. So I come from the Appalachian Range. I'm a Southeast Mountain person. And I spent a lot of my life in the um, Green Mountain Range, which is uh, New England. So that's the Northern Appalachians. And now I'm out here in the desert. And it's uh, it was quite a shocking <laughs> kind of translation of my bodily existence from one place to another and I thought for a long time I thought I had landed on the moon um, and woke up every morning thinking what am I doing here <laughs> and uh, it, it turns out uh, that I was curious enough before coming to the southwest to do an uh, astrocartography reading which is where you get uh, really I don't know anything about it so I'm not going to explain that but it's like having a uh, an astrology reading for yourself, except you're doing it for the location that you're interested in. And so I had this reading, and the finding was that where I was headed, I thought pretty much I was headed for where I am, but I wasn't certain about it. I could have stopped anywhere along the way. I just had a dog and my beautiful, beautiful dog named Sister and my Toyota that was packed tight as a tick and um, with almost nothing except books and pots and pans. And... Um, I just started driving west. But the, the astrocartography reading said basically that nothing was going to happen for me in this area. And I thought, okay, well, that's first. And I thought that must be the place to go. So here I am. And um, what I think that reading pointed to was the potential uh, to walk through a portal in which I made this shift, and I have to say it's a gradual and painful shift, and also funny and also um, illuminating, but gradual and painful is the first thing I thought of, uh, from doing to being, from being a, from, from a human person who's really a, not a human being, but a human doing, to a human person who's more of a human being. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that all those years of doing, since I'm 80, there were a lot of years of doing before I got out here in my uh, early 60s. Um, so 
all those years of doing were extraordinarily rich. Um, I've been an activist and a person serving others for, for my whole life, but it didn't always look like that, but it was, that's what was happening, happening, trying to change things, trying to just help people become who they were. Um, when I was teaching at a college, after I got my, I, I got a PhD from Harvard, which was uh, quite an accomplishment. And my purpose for doing that was so that I could write good reference letters for my students in the future. That was really the reason I decided to do it. Um, but it was a, a good experience. I wouldn't repeat it, but it was a good experience. And I got this PhD thing, which allowed me to go through some doors that otherwise might not have opened. I, I think I've, I've been trying to help others be as fully who they are as it's possible for them to be. And even though sometimes not knowing what that potential is themselves or me, I mean, I almost never know what it is for others. But I learned in the later years, back in the earlier part of this century, that, now that really makes me sound good and old, I love that. We pretty, we always already have not only what we call the seed of absolute in us, of, of Buddha mind, for example, Buddha potential or the seed of the of our true nature, not only that is within us, but also the potential to activate and articulate that in our lives in the ordinary world. And so I I look back now and I say I've always been uh, what I have always aspired to become, and I think it's true for all of us. So that's been a, a, a key kind of signature lesson for me um, that through the various activities and then the many long years of reflection upon the life that I led before I started the active uh, phase of reflection, which happened through writing a book based on 30 years of journals. It's called Light Years, A Spiritual Journey. I didn't know I was going to plug my writings, but that was good. So I worked in Africa in the middle of a war zone at one point in the 90s. I had worked in Africa before when I was in my 20s um, and uh, teaching, always teaching there. And uh, went to a Quaker co-ed boarding school, which really fixed in my mind the ideal of service with a call, small s, just life lived that way. I met at, in those years in the 50s. A woman named Peace Pilgrim, whom some of your listeners may have heard of, she was a woman who I think in her 40s put down her existing life and, and started walking. And she never stopped walking until I think she maybe have died in an automobile accident. Maybe somebody hit her on the road. I don't remember. But she was walking for peace. And um, I was just thunderstruck by the example of somebody so single-hearted that she could drop everything and give herself completely to her purpose, mm -hmm. whatever that purpose was. And I have longed for that kind of single-heartedness all my life. Some people find it by taking robes and taking ordination in a religious organization or something. Others find it by having children. Uh, you know, there can be lots of ways to find that single-heartedness. And for me, it's it's been by turning around and looking within and then bringing what I find there into the light to see is this truth and truth has a particular sound to me so I can tell when what I find inside myself is true or not and I think that's true of us all so I bring that out now for others in whatever ways I'm able to formally I'm known as a dharma teacher as a uh, as a, I'm a, uh, a lama in the tibetan tradition but not in the traditional tibetan tradition but in the very wise and broad view of my particular lama, whose name is uh, His Eminence Garchen Rinpoche, who sees each person's potential and helps them develop that. And uh, so he's allowed me to be in his surroundings as a person who is, I'm probably a, adhering to the oldest of the traditions, which is that you you sniff truth out forever until you completely embody it. And uh, it can look one way one lifetime and another way another lifetime. So at the moment, I'm, uh, I'm in the Buddhist framework, but I, um, I'm not uh, limited in any way by that. It has no limits inherently. I live a life of uh, increasing interior freedom 
for which I am so grateful because I have been a bewildered, confused person most of my life. I could not figure out how to be a human being here. I just couldn't figure it out. I didn't know how to live uh, a life. I didn't know how to be a person. And, and I know I'm not alone in that, which is why I'm mentioning it, I think. I don't know that I have any accolades particularly, so I'm not going to trot out any accomplishments or accolades, but those are kind of, this is kind of the way I've lived. It's the way I'm still living, and uh, I have a few years left, and I don't see a reason to change except to talk less maybe at some point. I think everybody will be happy about that. (laughs) But Rick, probably not. He'll probably (laughs) want me to keep talking for a while. No, I like your talking. I like your talking a lot. (laughs) Well, that's mutual. Well, but I have to say, too, the reason I like your talking so much is because it's balanced equally by your capacity to listen and to listen deeply. So... One without the other, probably I wouldn't like as much. And it it's the two, the true listening and true speaking, which is just such a delight. Thank you for telling me that because I am what I call a process speaker, a process thinker. Uh, some people are very thoughtful and really consider what they uh, think and how they view something before they open their mouths to start to speak about it. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> I know a few people like that. Um, and and uh, sometimes I'm kind of annoyed by them it's, you know, because, because it's sort of slow. But I'm, I open my mouth and I often understand how I'm seeing, how I'm thinking, how I'm understanding by speaking for me to articulate is also to understand, I think. Yes. Yeah. It reminds me of, and I've tried to find this quote many times, and I've never been able to find, track down the source of it. I heard it somewhere long ago. Some, it was some famous writer. And the quote is, one writes not to tell, but to find out. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I love that quote, and I I so mm-hmm. wish I could track down who where I heard it or who said it. But in any case, um, it applies. Well, I've noticed this in our conversations. The conversations that you and I have that we both at the end say, wow, that was, you know, why didn't we record that? <laughs> you know, those conversations. They're co-creative kind of explorations where we're maybe taking something apart, but more likely we're feeling our way inside, uh, each of us inside, and then bringing out something that meets what the other person is experiencing and also bringing out, and something new happens. Uh, Maybe that's why we're sitting here today, because we have that kind of conversation uh, in our times together when we get to see each other or sit together. Well, it is uh, why we're here today and why I'm recording this, because We've had these experiences and I wanted to share you like the quality of you and you in conversation. I wanted to share with those who have been tuning into my podcast. And so let me give you a quick because you have no back. You don't have any idea what I'm doing with this podcast because I've started it since we last spoke. And so I'll give you a quick update. Okay. This is episode 42 of a of a podcast my podcast is called the follow through formula and the follow through formula podcast is about how does any individual and as i've been saying to the listeners how do you follow through on you oh my gosh i want to speak to that oh, i i know you do and that's why that's why <laughs> i called you and said we're going to talk about this because This is, what else is there? This is my Mm -hmm. most thrilling, Mm -hmm. passionate conversation. So when you say, I want to talk about that, tell me what, what is there? What gets sparked by that? Well, I didn't say I want to talk about it. I said, I want to speak to it. I um, am really aware at age 80 
that I am now doing the work I was born for. Right. I'm now in the world as the person I was born to be, but still groping. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not completely that yet, but I am definitely doing the work I came to do. Yes. And, and I've known that, that this work was my work since I was a little girl. But I didn't, of course, have words for it, like the words I would use now. But I knew when I was little that all I was looking for was truth. And uh, and then so they gave me the name God for that. And so then I was looking for God. And, uh, and then um, God sent me away uh, to look for truth. And uh, that was in my teenage years. And um, until then, I'd been looking for God. So then God sent me away to look for truth, meaning the unnamed God, the the God without a name. And that was given me some kind of a little vision kind of experience that I had when I was in uh, college at Uh Harvard. It happened in the science hall, one of those lab things where you are sitting in a very steep tier of seats so that you're all looking down at where the lab table is. Right. And uh, it always gave me kind of, you know, acrophobia. So I, I, so I thought I was going to fall off. Um, but I, I actually I actually had a visual vision with a voice saying, you must go now and walk on your own uh, and uh, without the named God. Hmm. Uh, and I then took off from the campus. I met, I immediately left that that place and and um went down into a park by the river and was just weeping i was completely bereft mm. i had really uh, adhered to the named god and um thought that that was what my search was and i had been sent away and uh and i knew that i was then going to be wandering in the world to find uh, truth without a an identifier necessarily and that that was going to be very difficult i had no idea what that meant but uh but intuitively i sensed that and um and indeed that has has been what's happened ever since and it seemed as if uh i all the ways in which i referred to earlier that i had done service work of some sort i i always over and over and over again in this lifetime i've had the experience of seeking um the next uh the next level or the next uh opening um, in my understanding and my uh, ability to be who I am, uh, although I didn't much like who I was, honestly, but I knew there was something in there that was more to my liking <laughs> than what I was seeing. And over and over again, I've had the experience of thinking I've found it, the the thing that I was to do or the way I was to work or how uh, what kind of a relationship I was to be in or what kind of a person I was to be. I think I'd found it. It was like stepping over and over again into a room and saying, oh, finally, I'm in my room. This is my room. And then not long after, maybe year, a couple of years, maybe longer, I find there's a door on the other side that's opening and I'm being impelled to go through that door right. again. Right. You know? And um, and that happens. It's still happening, honestly. Right. I, maybe the door of dying will be you know, a, 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 into a, a room that is large enough. But currently I can say I cannot be confined. And at some point I always feel confined and recognize that there's something uh, less confining, less defining, less confining, less defining. Um, and uh, I, I'm not seeking something else. It's just that I'm no longer able to be contained within what I'm in. And I'm in another I'm in another place like that right now, actually. But this little girl who knew she was looking for truth has been whatever she found that rang true. Remember I said at the beginning that truth has a sound for me? I can't say what the sound is, but I can give you an analogy for it in a minute. But um, whenever I found one of those precious nuggets, uh, maybe it was a word. You know, maybe it was a way of looking at something. I don't know what what it might have been when I was littler, but I would then immediately give it to some, I would immediately want to share that with others. Of course, you can imagine how endearing that made me as a child. (laughs) (laughs) So it's only now at 80 that I'm old enough to be doing what I've been doing all my life and really get away with it. (laughs) Right, right. 
So, so here's the analogy for the sound of truth. At one point in the 80s, um, I was living in uh, Vermont, and I had a, a wonderful little ca- uh, camping cabin that I was gradually transforming into a sweet little cottage and drawing out of a woody glade into a beautiful, um, almost a meditation park, really. It was exquisite. And um, I, but it needed some aseptic work, and so I hired some people to come along and make me a septic a leach field that would allow me to have a better plumbing. And they did their leach field thing that they do with their, you know, machine, you know, their little scopes that they check things out at angles and depths and stuff. And then they did their pits, you know, and then make this a field of white tubes sticking up that you're their assays that you're going to be able to you know tell whether the ground is dry or wet underneath so the parting instruction to me was every week at least um you should go out and you should drop a pebble down into the tubes and you should listen for the sound is it wet or um, is it is it damp or is it uh dry and so i would go out there but it became so intoxicating rick that i went out every day so I went out, and, I, and there were lots of pebbles around, and every day I'd go out, <laughs> I'd drop my pebble down, and and it would hit, and it would go thunk, and I I felt as if I were listening for the sound of truth. It was, it was a powerful orienting device, and uh, I never did the leech field. I was really interested in truth, not in poop, so I did <laughs> a much simpler arrangement, <laughs> right? But... But it was an orienting device that you can listen internally for the sound of truth. And that's what I've been listening for ever since in my own uh, mind or my own beingness, my own sphere of existence and in others. And it's the only thing I want to hear. And truth is the only thing I want to speak about or speak to or speak of or speak. Yes. And so now I'm old enough and hallelujah, <laughs> I have spoken. <laughs> so that's what I wanted to say. So I'm, I'm uh, translating this for other listeners and wanting to ask a question on their behalf, which is, yeah. do I have to wait? Let's say I'm the 25-year-old who's still attending Harvard <sighs> University no, and, you don't have to wait. And you should start right now. You're what you're saying is, you know, you kind of alluded to I'm 80 now and finally it works in society, it works for me to speak truth all the time. What is a 25-year-old who is in that lab having a trans-academic experience do <laughs> when they walk out of there and and want to just live truth and speak truth, um, what do you recommend to that person? I recommend actually letting go of whatever you're holding on to uh, that you think is giving you definition, identity, validity, and so on. Uh, be, look to see where the handholds are and release them so that you can be in free fall and then you'll get caught again and then you'll be in free fall again and you'll get caught again. Yes. Because unless you sp- experience groundlessness, meaning not continuing to create identities that carry you through the world with some kind of markers, yeah. uh, unless you let th- go, you will not find truth. Right. Absolutely. truth is not in any of those things. Absolutely. And to live your life as if it is and as if you need to do what other people think you need to do or you think other people think you need to do or even that you think you need to do, then you haven't yet developed your own little leech field, uh, assay field. You know, you, you, you need to listen for the sound of truth within because once you hear it within, you will also recognize that you're hearing it echoing around you all the time. It's, it's inescapable once you know what it sounds like. And I'm not saying that there's a particular sound. It's a, a resonance, a resonance that we each have to what is true. I mean, because we're inseparable from truth. I mean, it wouldn't be called truth unless it were completely true for everything at all times, right? In my experience, the process you're talking about is it's a completely open listening so we're listening for moving toward truth, but sometimes 
I was just I was speaking to another good friend about this who I interviewed four or five days ago. Her name is Tarini, and she was talking about a process she went through after she had been in corporate sales for a few decades. And unbeknownst to her, that period, that portal closed and she found herself going through the motions of corporate sales and it just wasn't working anymore. Mm. And Mm. she wound up in a series of, you know, she was moving between positions and she was describing how she was interviewing to be a sales director for various large companies around the country. And she would get on a plane and she would go to the interview and she'd get back on the plane to go home and find herself in dread thinking, please don't let me get this job. And (laughs) and so what she was, she quoted, I can't remember who she quoted, it was some other author who talks about the um, sometimes all you have is the knowledge of not this. Yes, yes. And, and I, pay attention. Yeah. I don't know what it is yet, but I know it's not this. That's, that's the person who's listening for the sound of truth. Right. And so the question is now, so then the moment we accept, the moment we are receptive to not this, that's when groundlessness begins. And what do you do in groundlessness? What instruction do you have? Because to suggest to someone that they let go of these attachments and identities is one thing, but that person needs help and guidance for that moment when it arrives because we're not prepared for that. We don't know how to navigate groundlessness as it culturally we don't so help help this help me help any person who follows the instructions to let go (laughs) well a couple things um the first is i think it's really valuable to know um or to recognize that the spiritual path uh, which is the path we're all walking whether we call it that or not is not additive, it's subtractive. And so when I spoke about identities and markers, it's not so much to let go of the particular identities and markers, but to let go of the process of creating them over and over again. Mm -hmm. Because all of that is calculated and intended to give us the sense that we know who we are, we know what's happening, and uh, in other words, to make solid something that's actually a, like a flowing river. So as we take away, it, as each time we're grasping for something that gives us a sense of, of oh, I am this, not that, immediately uh, consult your suspicion index to see whether that's really true or not, and if so, so what? And why are you asking that question? Uh, am I a this or am I a that? What lies between those two? What lies between the two poles of everything that we see? Because we see in binaries, yes? And um, that's a way of letting go of the handholds that we keep trying to hold on to. And, uh, and going into even a moment of free fall with, with a, a sense of alarm and... Uh, curiosity at the same time mm-hmm. is a big adventure. It's a huge adventure. And it might be something as simple as saying, oh, I don't think I'm going to meet eat meat anymore for a while and see what that's like. Or right. I think I'll try doing a podcast once a day for 21 days. Right. You know, it's it's letting go of, of, of the, it's not creating an identity. It's doing something that you kind of want to do, you know, yes. and exploring. It's exploratory. And, and so life can become exciting in that moment, but exciting is sometimes really terrifying. Right. And so I don't have any pat answers except to really pay attention, really pay attention, just as your example uh, indicated, pay attention to it's, I don't know what I'm looking for, but it's not quite this. Right. 
because you're always looking. It's not as if this is new for everybody. Everybody's always looking for truth because it's who we are. It's we're magnetized by what's true. We're magnetized by the absolute here in relative reality. The, the magnetic pull of the absolute of what is actually true is always working us. It's always pulling us. So it really requires a lot of effort not to go there. Right. Exactly. <laughs> no wonder we're so tired. All the time. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I have been speaking about this, why we get so exhausted because unconsciously there's this inner battle going on all the time to suppress that which wants to be enlivened. Yeah, and I love this. Yeah. We wind up feeling exhausted, tired, unsatisfied at the end of the day and bewildered by that. You cannot erase the need for your spirit to be fully alive. And it, it will continue to push and attempt to bring itself to radiance regardless of of what we do, you cannot erase that blueprint. And it'll drive you crazy. Right. <laughs> and, and, you know, at, at the moment, I just want to let you and your listeners uh, join me in something. Somebody brought me a pumpkin pie. And I am standing up now and I have a knife in my hand and I'm cutting off a little tiny piece of this pumpkin pie and I'm sharing it with all of you. It's very <laughs> small. It's very small. It's going to, Oh, I don't have that old kind of telephone anymore that has a receiver with holes in it. But imagine that I did. I'm going to squeeze this pumpkin pie through the receiver. <laughs> everybody gets to have a bite. And it sounds very generous, but really it's because I really am slavering after <laughs> after a taste of this pumpkin pie. that arrived instants before this phone call, so I wasn't able to have it. <laughs> okay, now here I go. This Lovely. is for all of us. This is an altruistic activity. Oh, yeah, so... <laughs> all right because you you were just talking for a minute ago about the excitement and the fear that go hand in hand and i i wrote in a recent bio i was putting up somewhere that my goal at the moment was to panic with grace <laughs> realizing that i'm not going to get rid of the panic that's there because yeah. the the panic and even defining it as panic says something about my relationship to control and fear. You know, that's I, I like the way you're speaking about that. And I want to share something that I've been thinking about for a few years now in the um, Tibetan tradition of Buddha Dharma and I think other traditions as well. Uh, we speak of three poisons, uh, which just are part of the makeup of the sentient beings. It's not like something we invented or created and it's not our fault is due to an innocent error of perception that takes to be real and solid and inherently existing a self that actually is not. And so these things happen that we call uh, passion, aggression, and ignorance. And ignorance is sometimes referred to as, in, as confusion, simply not understanding the nature of reality. Mm -hmm. what, and what I've been observing, it's really easy to see human beings in situations of grasping or, or passion or, you know, avarice or, you know, wanting something, or human beings in a condition of pushing something away that they don't want. So it's like, I like it, I want it, give me more, or I don't like it, I'm going to kill it. And then, but confusion is harder to describe. And um, what I've, as I've been sort of uh, ethnographically, you know, in my own experience and then observing others, looking at this confusion syndrome, um, what I've seen is how beneath the level of consciousness, even, there is for human beings and also for some animals, I've seen it with cats and I've seen it especially with dogs also. It also happens with ants, I think. I've seen it with, a little bit with ants. There is what I can only call panic, a, 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 a some level of panic, some quality of panic in the mind that doesn't know. So it's not so much losing this or not having such and such anymore. It's that there's an instant, and it might only be an instant, of not knowing. Mm -hmm. And what we do with that is 
instantly, as soon as we're in that state of not knowing, we tend to grasp for anything right. that will give us some sense of continuity, right. some stability of, of, our, of our existence, some stability of our sense of uh, that we are and who we are or what we are. But that moment of not knowing is that's where you want to be, actually. Right. And, and we want to. So you ask, well, how, what would you tell somebody at age 26? I'd say be in that moment of not knowing and, and allow yourself to fully experience the panic, the despair, the, the grief, that experience it all and don't know about it either. Right. And, and cultivate uh, a kind of almost a hunger of not knowing cultivate a a, a, a a kind of despairing courage that also again has this curiosity in it this uh, that I'm oh I'm looking at something differently let me look differently at this thing and, uh, and and so to have an experience that you've never allowed yourself actually to experience before is a very amazing event and having it once and not falling apart and ending up in a psych ward, uh, is a good incentive to have it again, and and to, to, that's again that's letting go of the handholds in a sense. Because what we do instantly is create that that uh, stability and continuity in our minds, so that we can continue. What we want though is to interrupt the continuity when when it's not, when it's not quite this. You know, it's it we're looking for X, and it's just off of X. We don't know. We don't know. We we just don't know. Right. And so we have to be, we don't have to be, but we get to be if we're willing. And maybe we're willing 25% of the time. Maybe we're willing once and then 10 years later we're willing again. Do you know this is not a linear process? Uh, right. But to, to recognize willingness in the experience of an empty of a gap like that to recognize willingness to just be there for an, even if it's just an instant there you're developing, you're, you're not developing, you're experiencing a quality of spaciousness that is absolutely horrifying and terrifying until you recognize, Oh, what is experiencing that? You may not have a name for it. It might not be Barbara or Rick, you know, it might be, I don't even know what's experiencing this. This is very rich soil to be turning over. Yes. Learning to tolerate ambiguity and the unknown. I find it alarming beyond words. I find it terrifying every time I'm aware of, of an instant of that. I find it terrifying. So I'm really speaking from my own experience when I describe this process. And I, and I think um, I, ha I have an intellectual understanding that I, there's nothing to be frightened of here because I have actually some experience of what's on the other side of that in a way. Um, but, but each time I meet it, I'm terrified again. And I only know that I'm terrified because I'm all clenched up inside. The fault line in our living in existence is the notion that there is solidity, um, the notion that there is selfness, in other words, to oneself and to the pillow that's right here next to me and to the table and the tree and the sky, that there's selfness, meaning that there's some intrinsic existence. Yeah, that's the fault. That's mm -hmm. the fault line. And um, that's the what's called the original ignorance in in uh, in the training that I've had, which is really helpful because the word ignorance, I grew up in the southeast, it meant that you just weren't brought up right. Right, right. <laughs> right. So I was glad to learn that the word ignorance actually meant you didn't understand. Right. right. You don't understand. Um, so... The fault line is, therefore, an adherence to something that's not true. So there's 
when there's a fault fault line in a in a vessel like a, I used to do pottery and there, if there was a fault in the clay body uh, you you can't make it right you have to take it down back down to the right you know the 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 clay body itself and and bring it back up again and um, anything that has a fault line in it is inherently fragile so we're constantly trying if it, the inherent fragility for us is the thought that we have intrinsic existence. We're real, no question, here we are, we're real. I'm thumping my chest as I'm saying that. I can hear it, you can probably hear it on the phone. And uh, clearly we're real, you know, we have physical material uh, existence, we're real, here we are. Um, but we don't, we're, not, we're not existing in the way we think we are. Right. That's where, right. that's where the, the problem lies. We think we're, um, <laughs> You know, in, 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 we're, we think we're truly existence in an absolute sense when it's really we're existing in a relative sense in that everything is interdependent. We, right. we exist depending on everything else and it's in, in, we're, we're impermanent. We're here now. We're not going to be here maybe five minutes from now. and We weren't here five minutes before this and so on and so forth. These things we know intellectually, but when we set to live them, when we set to really understand the nature of reality – um, we we confront these truths in our direct, visceral experience of being uh, a human being or being a you know an ant, and and uh, I, you know whether they have self consciousness or not, I don't know, um, but we certainly do, and um, so the 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 moment. Uh, that I was speaking to isn't the moment of whether you think you're going to perish or that you're going to have a miserable time. Those are all very relative reality considerations. It's more that in, and, and I don't want to use the word spaciousness because it gives a name to something I like to leave unnamed because I don't have a name for it yet. But when for an instant you do not know and, and let's not even put a predicate there. You know, you don't know. It may be you don't know what to do. It might be you don't know who you are. It might be you don't know what to say. It might be any of those things. But it's the moment before there is a, 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 a completion to the, that verb form, it, the moment before that when you just don't know, that's the moment of existential panic. Right. That I think all of our... We spend our lives creating structures of thinking, of feeling, of believing, of hoping, of fearing, of hating, of loving, you know, uh, of doing this and not doing that. We, we create structures based on, on the, the essential existential need to, to know. Right. To not, to not be in that gap. Do you know who Alex Honnold was? The free climber? Yes. Well. Wait a second. Did you just say was? Oh, is he still alive? I believe so. Well, that's a miracle. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So his movie Free Solo, um, did you saw the film? I, I didn't see the whole thing. I would, I, I I did not see the whole thing. I won't go into why not, but um, when I, I've seen, uh, video clips of him moving and, and also other people climbing in that way. Um, it's, it's incomprehensible, but, but it really is very much like what we do in meditation practice sometimes, I think. Over and over again, that person who's literally hanging off the side of a cliff face um, is in that experience that is in that void and holding on to something that's that is a uh, an illusory solidity you don't know at any moment whether that thing that you're holding on to on the rock face is going to give way i mean you don't i mean you may have chipped at it and tested it and so on but when you've got your weight on it and you're moving to the next pitch you don't know if it's actually going to hold you and that's our condition right that i mean that Right there is our condition. We are all Alex Honnold. I don't know what they tell themselves when they're climbing up that way. I don't know what they're saying. Maybe it's, oh, shit, what have I done? <laughs> <You know? laughs> Maybe it's, 
you know, I'm going to die. Maybe it's, oh my God, this is the most fun I've ever had in my life. Or maybe it's, gee, my back is killing me. Uh, you know, who knows what it is? I have no idea what they think. Well, Alex Honnold speaks to that in the document in the documentary, and and so what he's describing is that none of that is going on, which is why he is addicted, literally uh, addicted to that, that activity sense. because that sense, yeah. it necessitates the cessation of yeah. all of that. So there's no mentation. There's just presence. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the state that we would like to be in. We think. Until for me, I'd like to be in that state, and then when I'm on the verge of it, I I, I often shut down, mm-hmm. in one way or another, subtle or obvious, you know. So, uh, and I'm just honest about that. I, I, you know, I'm sure I lied about it for years, but now I just say, "What the heck? I'll just say it." <laughs> I I have a a tangible example of that. Just before our call, I was speaking to my wife and son, it was actually two different conversations, but the same thing came up in both conversations. And what was being reflected to me by my wife and my son was a certain thing that I do, a way I relate to certain problems that actually makes things more complicated and disempowers everybody in the circumstance. The, the content of what they were saying isn't so important, but what's the, the point I'm sharing is that in that moment, the feeling for me is I'm lost. I have no idea what to do without yeah. that. They're yeah. saying, hey, this doesn't work. and And I can hear it. It's not like I was being defensive or defending myself, I can see what they're describing. But the feeling internally is, well, then I, I don't exist. Then I don't, I have no clue. What, what then? Because that's all I got. (laughs) That's all that. But it's the I don't exist moment that I think is I just think that's the cherry on the cake that to be able to experience that moment and not dissemble, not dissimulate, not make something up just even for an instant. Well, so, so let's, let's talk about that instant because I think it's much more common. Like if we're going to talk about, I think it happens all the time. Yes. And, and we avoid it all the time. In fact, most people's lives are constructed as a grand avoidance pattern of that moment occurring. Exactly. That's exactly what I meant when I was talking about confusion. Right. That's exactly what we do. Yeah. Right. So, so in the, realm of follow through when i'm talking about the follow through formula i'm talking about understanding coming out of the ignorance the way you defined it which is we don't understand how we orchestrate this grand avoidance pattern and when we if we can begin to see how we do that and just stop and refrain from the avoidance then we're going to meet this moment of delightful grand supreme confusion which is a moment of possibility for us no it's just a moment (laughs) you already added something are you You eating more pumpkin pie right now (laughs) Uh, just a little yeah (laughs) (laughs) you can't you can't sit there and be contrarian to me with pumpkin pie in your mouth that's just more that I just did. So that was the moment and you slipped past it. I can't remember the exact words, but there was a moment and then something. And then you added something. And that's what we do. We add something. There are forms of, um, we could call them meditative um, practice or discipline where you train to be able to look at bare mind with bare attention not adding anything, not taking anything away, just seeing 
what is. This is the hardest thing ever. <laughs> my my lama says the hardest thing, you, the, the greatest effort you will ever have to make in your life is the effort to do nothing. Mm-hmm. And it's hard enough to do nothing when you're sitting in a chair or on a cushion, or even when you're out taking a walk, it's hard to do nothing. You're always doing something. But the hardest nothing, in my, in my you know, little bit of experience, the hardest nothing is uh, to do nothing with what's arising in the mind, meaning what you're experiencing. Right. You know, and because uh, we, we grab each one of those little events and we, you know, elaborate them and embroider and so on or push them away or grab them or, you know, make up a story about them. And uh, it, but if you don't, they just dissolve in your mind. Right. If you if you don't touch what's arising in the mind, it it dissolves, and then there is mind, and that is panic inducing, until you habituate enough to it to recognize, oh, that's what I've been asking for for the last twenty five years. Now get get it away from me. Right, right, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. sort of like intimacy. <laughs> it's, it's a lot like intimacy yes <laughs> I, I want that i want that i want whoa yeah. hold on slow down there <laughs> yeah. i guess i was thinking you know the blessing of having the wife and the child you know and, and uh to, to that, that clear mirror <laughs> lucky you <laughs> well it was it was very interesting because it I think it's related to what you're describing, but so that I had that experience and then um, I was about to get on this call with you that was scheduled and I was literally in the middle of these conversations and my feeling was I can't possibly do this call because the call I want, I want this call to be delightful and coherent and, <laughs> and wonderful and I am a complete mess in this moment because I felt self-critical and confused and ignorant and lost. And I just, that was a moment where I had to go, oh, okay, I'm either going to follow that thread or I'm just going to stop and drop that. And like you said, it's just a moment. And then I just walked in and called you. So that was the state. That was my state of entering this conversation. Perfect. Because I had just been handed a pumpkin pie and I wasn't going to be able to eat it. So I was in a state of complete disarray myself of a different kind, very materially oriented of like, I've got the pie in one hand and I can see the phone should be in the other hand. Okay. (laughs) All right. I'm going for the phone. I continue to make an an attempt to weave this back to follow through and the idea of how does what we're speaking about relate to following through on one's self, on actually being who you are. Well, for me, as simply as I could put it, is that from the time I was very young, I was looking for the only thing I was really looking for was truth. And I substituted food a lot, <laughs> which you've seen in action, <laughs> right? So but that's, I was, that's such a unique thing to do. Nobody else does that. Right. It's true. I'm, I'm quite unusual in that way. So at least at least it's not something uh, more dist- – well, uh, never mind. We won't go there. So, but from, from, from very early age, uh, seeking truths, I didn't – you know, I don't know if at age five I would have said those words, but I could have said something like that. I got pointers along the way. Look here, look there. But the most valuable pointers were looking this way, like the pointer about the leech field. Listen for the sound of truth. Yeah. And so the follow through has been uh, I said at the very beginning, you asked me to talk a little bit about my life and my accomplishments and stuff, and I reported that I was very bewildered most of my life. I was really bewildered most of my life. I didn't know how to do this, how to be here. I didn't. I couldn't understand um, human relationships. I didn't have good guidance for human relationships, at least not guidance that I accepted as good. And um, I didn't. I didn't understand. I was bewildered. 
And when I started listening for the sound of truth, um, I mean, I always had been listening for the sound of truth or I wouldn't have heard these little guidelines, but I started hearing in a more refined way, maybe, or maybe I was just stubborn enough that I kept listening for what I, uh, what I would recognize. And I, I recognized from time to time, the sound of truth. And, um, and I'm now a person who lives only for that, to, to, to enunciate the sounds of truth. I, I live only to speak truth. And, uh, so I'm following through. Yeah. A hundred percent. I'm following through. I couldn't have said that a year ago. Mm-hmm. Not with the same certainty and humility. Honestly, I never use the word humility about myself. I use the word humiliation, maybe, but not humility. <laughs> but there's humility in acknowledging that I am, I'm a person who's following through. Mm-hmm. But there's a there's a what you know writers talk about a through line in a book you know um I, it, the through line in my life I'm living it I got I got hold of it I got hold of it in in the in the 90s when I when I went through these 30 years of journals to see what the hell had happened and uh, and I saw that I was uh, that the the life the life I'd been living and the things that had happened uh, that were so incomprehensible, um, they all were revealing to me the person I'd always been, the being I've always been, and also the person I've always been who now is living full on. Mm -hmm. You know, there's nothing hidden. I'm not groping anymore. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm in follow through mm-hmm. and I have a certainty that I will be in this in follow through until I'm out of here till I and even on my deathbed I am certain that I'm following through I could not have said that even a year ago mm-hmm. so it's a question I have never been asked in this way but it's a knowledge I have about myself now that gives me I wouldn't say courage although courage yes but it gives me um, I don't know, Rick, honestly, having said that with that, uh, clarity and that is certain though. And I, you know, me, you know, that I'm speaking what is true for me. You know me well enough to know that. But at the same time, I have to tell you that I am living in a state of broken heartedness day in and day out because this, this following through that I am, I am a following through on, on the seeking of truth. It means there's nothing that I am not to see or experience that anything that comes my way is going to be uh, right in the marrow of my experience. I don't have, I, I, I have less and less defense, and which is a good thing in my book, but mm-hmm. it's not a comfortable, easy thing. And so so I'm 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 the person who's following through on my purpose in this life, mm-hmm. um, with everything I've got, pretty much, you know, aside from every now and then a little foray into pumpkin pie. Well, I think this is a good place for us to stop, only because the pumpkin pie is still over there. The, <laughs> <laughs> the pumpkin pie is there. You're going to have to leave one slice on your front porch for me to come pilfer. So this has been the pumpkin pie pod. <laughs> nice. I love it. The pumpkin pie pod. But I'm really glad you're doing this because it's really enlivening. I mean, I'm, you used that word. Now I'm using it. I, I can feel how alive how, how alive this is for you. This is a very interactive. It's very immediate and in the moment. And it's uh, it, it's very generous. It's, it's generative in the doing of it and it's generous in the giving of it, you know, to others. I, I'm... I'm delighted. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me and sharing our dialogue with the rest of my listening friends who I'm sure are now your friends. I'm really grateful that you were willing to play and just jump in and speak with me. So 
Thanks. Thank you, Rick. It was great. I really enjoyed it a lot. And thank you, everybody who's listening. And this has been episode 42 of the Follow Through Formula podcast. I'm Rick Lewis, and I'll be back tomorrow. Hey, thanks for being here and being a die-hard listener down to the last decibel. My vision for these conversations is that you get informed and inspired to take consistent action on the real you. If these podcasts help you to do that, I'm thrilled. And if you'd like to take that work to the next level, I invite you to join me inside the Life Leap community, where I'm creating a culture and a support network for those who want to pursue what matters most in their lives. To learn more, just go to gamesforconfidence.com and click on the Life Leap menu item. I'd love to see you on the inside, and otherwise, I'm sure we'll meet again in another episode.